And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. On the phone line with us today is Dr. Earl Tilford. He's a military historian and fellow for the Middle East and terrorism with the Center for Vision and Values, Grove City College. He's also a retired Air Force intelligence officer, and he served as director of research at the U.S. Army's Strategic Studies Institute. And then in 2001, he left government service for a professorship at Grove City College, where he taught courses in military history, national security, and international and domestic terrorism and counterterrorism. Dr. Tilford, thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be on this uh, program. You recently wrote an op-ed entitled, America Faces a Historical Global Crossroad. And it appeared in the Center for Vision and Values. I'm on their mailing list. And um, I'm wondering, as we get started today, Dr. Tilford, if you could um, recount for us some of the, well, somewhat frustrating history, as uh, you've documented in this this article, um, some of the failings of leadership and what's what's come in earlier decades that we have kind of inherited as our society here in America? Well, uh, this semester at the University of Alabama, uh, I'm teaching a, a course on the Vietnam War. And in looking at the early uh, commitment to Vietnam during the Kennedy administration, I was uh, struck by, by uh, the similarities uh, in President Kennedy and in our current president, President Obama, who eight years ago was seen by many as a uh, second coming of John F. Kennedy. He was young, he was uh, vigorous, he, was, uh, he, he seemed bright, and he is bright. He's an intelligent man. But, uh, and he seemed hopeful for the future of America, and I, and I think many people bought into that. And Kennedy, as I recall, uh, I remember at, at the age of 15, my father had just accepted his first church in Alabama, and I was still in Georgia, uh, staying with a minister friend there until I could finish out my, my, my fall semester. And I listened to that inaugural address uh, as I waited for my father to come and, and take me to Alabama. And, and it, it moved me, Kennedy's inaugural address. Of, we'll go anywhere, bear, bear any burden, support any friend, and oppose any foe. But the ending of that inaugural speech is what, it, if you go back and read it, Kennedy ends by saying that here on earth, God's work must truly be our own. And uh, that's quite often left out. But in those years in which we committed to Vietnam, uh, I think he he knew he was drawing he wanted to draw a line in the sand, but he he wanted to do it without using a lot of force. And uh, so he he adopted a very covert uh, approach. And it wasn't to keep it secret from the enemy; they knew what we were doing. It was to keep the level of our commitment secret from the American people. But that. That infected the whole Vietnam uh, enterprise from the beginning, and we continued that uh, sort of dishonesty with the American people about our motives. And then uh, when Kennedy came to office, we only had like a few hundred advisors in Vietnam. Uh, When he was murdered, uh, we had nearly 20,000, and President Johnson then inherited that, and he could not lose Vietnam and get his great society. But he also did not want to take any risks in Vietnam that he thought might risk his great society. And so we were left with going to war and not going to war. And we never had any clear-cut goals or aims. And uh, 
we, we did poorly. We lost the war. We haven't won a war since 1945, not clearly. The, um, what I see in terms of, of today is an, the Obama administration faced with a very serious threat in Syria uh, and also just pulling out of that region uh, in terms of leadership. But in Syria, we face a threat from ISIS, and, and there's the, when we face a global threat from al-Qaeda, and ISIS is a form of al-Qaeda. It, it's a, it, it comes out of that, uh, that genre. But this is a threat, really, of Saudi Wahhabism. Uh, a very, uh, and it, and it, uh, President Obama tends to think of this as an aberration. It's not an aberration. It is, right, uh, it is supported by millions and millions of Muslims by the House of Saud, uh, in fact. And uh, it, it means to do us in. It means to to turn the world into a, an Islamic caliphate. And it's, uh, Al-Qaeda has the, same, has the same goals. And since uh, the turn of the century, uh, they have expanded out of Afghanistan, and uh, now their, their reach is into Africa and the Horn of Africa and as far as Libya, and uh, they're back in Afghanistan and Iraq, and we've pulled out and let the Russians and the Iranians come in. In an, in an alliance, it's uh, really at almost a, a three-way new axis between uh, Tehran, Moscow, and to some extent Pyongyang in their relationship with Iran. So we're in a and they and and when they moved into the Middle East, when they moved into Syria, the Russians moved in. They set up an air defense system at Latika, that is the world's most sophisticated air defense system. It's bolstered by two cruisers, guided missile cruisers off base. And basically, uh, they can control the airspace over about a 250 to 300 mile radius, and that means over Israel. So, if Israel wanted to attack Iran, uh, the Russians could shoot down those planes before they left Israeli airspace. And also, this gives uh, Iran and Hezbollah a very clear access uh, 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 in, into into Lebanon, into Hezbollah there. Uh, all Iran has to do is bring their supplies in, and the Israelis have been in the past able to, to bomb them in, in Syria and in Lebanon. But if the Russians don't want that to happen, it won't happen. And the only and the Israelis can't take out this S-300 and S-400 air defense system. It's multi-layered, and we can, but we would require the use of uh, of our stealth uh, bombers and fighters. And that, of course, would start World War III. So we are the lack of leadership. Uh, has uh, put the world in extreme danger. And uh, that's why I think in this election we are at a crossroads. And when I look at the candidates, I'm, I'm not very enthusiastic about where we can go. Yeah, you raised some wonderful points, and it's very enlightening. Uh, for one point, I had no idea about this air defense system in Latica um, that the Soviets have put there with the 250 to 300-mile radius um, and uh, they're watching like hawks Israel, so that Israel can't even really uh, take out something in Iran without uh, their missiles being shot down. That's a mess. It is a mess, and it also covers our aircraft at Inchilik, which is uh, not that far away. And, of course, we have aircraft in the, uh, in the uh, fleet in the Mediterranean and also in the Indian Ocean, and, and this air defense system could uh, affect them as well. But so we, can, we could take it out, but it would require using our our B-2 bombers and our F-22 fighters, and if we attack that air defense system, uh, we've got World War III on our hands. That's right, and who wants World War III? I've been kind of bracing myself uh, as we've watched this horrible agreement that our president reached with Iran, and uh, ba- President Obama, it seems, has 
paved the way for Iran to get nukes. Yeah, they, and they will. And, they're, and, they're, and Iran has a relationship with North Korea that will furnish them missiles. I think they already have missiles that could hit, uh, hit Israel. Israel has 200 to 300 nukes at its own. It, it denies it has them, but it does. And uh, what we're good doing is we op- the, the Israelis cannot take out their, the Iranian nuclear threat uh, with conventional weapons. It's too deep and too dug in. Uh, our bunker buster bombs could do it, but they don't have a plane big enough to carry our bunker buster bombs. Only yeah. the uh, only our B-52 bombers and B-1s and B-2s can, can carry these. These bombs are enormous. But they, the Iranian, the uh, Israelis could do it with nu- with with nuclear tip weapons, with missiles, uh, cruise missiles, and also with their their mm-hmm. uh, Jericho missiles. And uh, they could also you do it with air air delivered missiles if they could get out before the Russians shoot them down. Uh, the Israelis are very resourceful, uh, and if pushed against the wall, they will they'll have to go after it. The Israelis will not will not mess around. I this past summer I taught a course on, a, on at the university on the Holocaust, and. Uh, uh, the Jews learned from that, and uh, you won't, you don't want to push them. That's right, and uh, I, um, I, I value our friendship with Israel um, not because of eschatological reasons, just because there are friends in the Middle East and very reliable uh, allies. And they're the only democracy there, and, they, and their society works. I had the privilege of studying at, at Tel Aviv University about 10 years ago, spent the summer there studying terrorism and counterterrorism so I could come back and, and teach it as a course at Grove City College. I was, my, my mission was to get some of those wonderful, wonderful Christian young people and get them into the intelligence services and into the Marine Corps, That's which great. I did. Uh, a number of young men and, and in a number of young men and women into the intelligence services. What do you tell people when they object over uh, warfare ideas? Uh, my take is that um, we want a powerful America, but because we have Christian roots, we should not go out and do nation-building or just willy-nilly attack people, but we should defend ourselves only in a just war. What is your perspective? Well, I gave, I gave a series of, uh, of Sunday school lessons of this past fall on that very issue at the First United Methodist Church here in Tuscaloosa. And I talked about just war and Christians and terrorism. This was right after the attacks in San Bernardino. And, uh, in fact, I had to modify my, my lesson to, to take that into account. No, we should not go out and willy-nilly attack people, uh, ever. And as a career soldier, and I, and I have many friends that, uh, who are in the military and quite high-ranking, the only general I've ever known that wanted to go to war was Curtis LeMay. Uh, you, I look on war as, a, as an oncologist should look on cancer. When my wife developed a very serious cancer a number of years ago, uh, we went to an oncologist who was Jewish and also quite good in, in thinking about strategic affairs, but I could almost see the glee in him at having this challenge. Uh, he was going to practice his his art, and he saw this as a as a chance to really get into it, and that's exactly how I feel about about war. We um, war. My father was a Presbyterian minister, and I never considered going into the ministry. I preferred going into the military. But I think we deal with life and death every bit as a minister does or a physician does, and we need to do that very thoughtfully, very prayerfully, and as a calling. 
uh, what soldiers do is yes, we are we are we are under law allowed to employ violence, and that means kill people on, uh, under certain circumstances. But we're also there to save lives and to do a greater good by this. And when you've got that kind of power, you've got the power over life and death. And I prefer that we be godly people. Not that, you know, we're not out there like, well, okay, this is my chance to kill onward Christian soldiers, but this is my chance to do something for a greater good, and you better know how to do it right. And you better know how to do it thoughtfully, prayerfully, in the sight of God. And that's, uh, that's, what I, that's why I think the military should be a high calling, and it, and it really scares me when we push uh, Christian values out of the military, as we're, we're, we're tending to do, uh, yes. uh, with the chaplaincy being uh, hobbled as it is, with forcing, uh, I think uh, there will come a day when chaplains will be forced to do gay marriages. And uh, and you're not going to have much in the way of chaplains, and then making chaplains out of Wiccans and yeah. uh, uh, Satanists and so on is, is stupid. That's right. Another event that came up that really... Uh got under my skin, was the whole Benghazi situation. Any comments about that? Well, as I, when I was in intelligence, I served as, as a warning center, as a, in a warning center at Strategic Air Command. And uh, as a warnings officer, and I was a captain, uh, mostly on your own the night shifts and things like that. But we had something, this was four decades ago in the 70s, known as a critic. And an American ambassador being threatened would send out a critic. That, that message goes immediately to the highest levels of U.S. government, including the White House. And it's all hands on deck when you get a critic. By my estimation, that, that event started coming down in the late afternoon uh, on a weekday, which means all hands were on deck. Uh, and the State Department would have been highly involved because this was an ambassador. Uh, the president, because the ambassador represents the president in that country, would be highly involved. And, uh, and in the military. Now, it's hard for me to believe uh, that on, on, on September the 11th, uh, uh, going back to 2001, that our forces are not on a, a higher state of alert. Even back then, on, on special days, uh, your your days with some meaning to them, your forces would be on high alert. For instance, in Vietnam, Ho Chi Minh's birthday, uh, those kinds of things, you would you would come to a higher state of alert. Also, I happen to know that we have fighter planes at Aviano Air Base in northern Italy. Those are F-16s. It doesn't take but just a few minutes to change out the armaments on an F-16. Now they they would have to they would have to fly to Saganella in Sicily, where we have a naval base and be refueled there. But they could refuel at Saganella and then be over Benghazi within about an hour, and they could loiter there for an hour. And if you were to send two planes down at one-hour intervals, you could keep air cover over Benghazi. And you know going down, you're not going down there with 500-pound bombs. You can go down there with just the 20-millimeter cannon that those planes have, and all of our pilots have got extensive experience in night operations. And it would just take a few passes, down that street in Benghazi, down that road, using 20-millimeter cannon to pretty well clean that out and keep heads down until we could get help in there. It is inconceivable to me that uh, we could not have gotten help there, at least within a couple of hours, had uh, F-16s overhead, and that would have uh, kept, kept heads down until we could get troops in there. It would seem to me the President of the United States would be in, in, on the phone to whoever is in Libya telling them that we're coming 
and don't bother us. That's but right. Instead, he was packing to go to Las Vegas. Yeah. And, the, and, and the line was that uh, al-Qaeda's on the run. We've got this thing under control, and there was an election up. The same thing happened to us uh, in, in 1972 or with the North Vietnamese offensive at Easter. The Nixon administration line at that time was that we are winning the war in Vietnam. We're not winning it, but we are withdrawing. The Vietnamization is working. And uh, obviously, if North Vietnam can uh, attack you with uh, uh, 10 North Vietnamese and two Viet Cong divisions, heavily people with North Vietnamese soldiers, in the largest invasion of one country by another since D-Day, Vietnamization is not working. Uh, our ambassador to uh, Vietnam that day was in Nepal. That was also a bunker. He was in Nepal visiting his wife, who was the ambassador at Kathmandu. General Clayton Abrams at MACV headquarters was in Bangkok where his family was there, and he planned to spend the Easter weekend with them. So, you know, we totally dropped the, the ball in intelligence because it didn't fit the political narrative. And that's what happened at Benghazi. And then this, this clumsy lie that came out uh, that it was uh, all a part of a video when you know, well, it wasn't. I'm convinced that Petraeus was blackmailed out of office over that. Mm. Uh, yeah, he uh, he had an affair with this this woman, uh, Paula, but uh, his uh, this writer. But I think he knew what happened at Benghazi, and I think he has he has the kind of a voice that people would have listened to. And it's just too coincidental that uh, this came up the following week, and he had to resign. Oh yes. Because I've known David Petraeus for a long time, and he, and he is, despite his his human failings, which are no, no different from many of mine, uh, he is a good man. Oh, yes. Uh, well, um, I'm very troubled as I see the leadership that we have had uh, of recent years, and I feel like uh, our nation has become severely weakened. There's no question we have a threat from ISIS right here on American soil now. Um, let's shift gears just a little bit. Uh, you've also written an article entitled Roots of Political Correctness and Its Renderings. I'm wondering if you can share a few thoughts from that and how it ties into this whole uh, discussion today. Well, it started as an, it began when I wrote an op-ed. Uh, I live in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and there's an effort by some people at the University of Alabama, mostly students, to get rid of everything that has to do with our Confederate past. A number of our buildings are named for, for past presidents who, oh, happen to also be Confederate officers. And being 19th century men, oh, they also happen to be racist. <laughs> but, uh, uh, and so they're trying to alter history in a, in a way that is very dangerous. So I wrote, I wrote an op-ed to that effect, and uh, a friend of mine who is a former vice president of universities asked if I would like to elaborate on that at a, at the local exchange club uh, in a month or so. And so I sat down and just wrote out my thoughts, and it turned into about a 15-page paper. I refined it and refined it, and I would like to publish it. But I think it's our educational systems that that are failing. And I go back into how all this got started and goes back to Vietnam. I was a student during the Vietnam War, and the draft was a very big deal. And then by 1969, the young, young men were choosing their majors based on whether or not, many of them, on whether or not it provided draft exemption. I uh, went into Air Force ROTC because that, uh, that got you into the Air Force, and you were sworn in, and you would then be exempt from the draft, and that would allow me to finish college. And I wanted to be a fighter pilot at the time, and then I went on to grad school and 
ended up being an intelligence officer, but I did go in the Air Force and serve out a career. But during that time, graduate schools expanded. Lyndon Johnson was an education president. He poured a lot of money into education, and a, and a number of people were getting degrees for the first time. But as the universities began to expand, they needed more students. And, if, uh, and so you, you, put, you got in new graduate programs because eventually you get your bachelor's degree and move on. They brought in graduate programs, and some of them, uh, they, they, they lowered the standards to, uh, to get students, uh, to, uh, to, to allow them to enter, and then to keep them in school. Uh, for instance, a master's degree in history used to require one foreign language, a doctorate, too. Many institutions dropped one for the master's and, and dropped from two to one for the doctorate. Uh, and uh, then eventually these people got, got degrees, and uh, they needed jobs, so you tried to keep your, your graduate programs up. And then uh, uh, when they, the market became really glutted with uh, doctorates in history and political science and English, especially the liberal arts, uh, they began to replicate themselves by hiring people who agreed with you, them politically. And it came down to that. For instance, as a Vietnam veteran and a Christian, uh, although I had published my dissertation and I had plenty of teaching experience, uh, I only got one job interview out of, out of 200 applications, and that was at Grove City College. Ironically, I got I had more job interviews to become a president or dean uh, of a college or university than I did teaching. But if you look at, 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 at colleges of arts and sciences, and a number of, of conservative pundits like Rush Limbaugh and, and Ann Coulter and, and Michael Savage claim that universities are just rampant on the left. That's not so. It wasn't in Vietnam here, and it's, if you get into the schools of business administration and into, into the hard sciences, that is not so. Uh, I once heard Michael Savage say that there were only two registered Republicans on the entire Ohio State faculty, and I countered, I was in the audience, I raised my hand and said, well, I know four of the two of them, and that's just in the history department. Uh, <laughs> it's uh uh, it does get overstated, but it, but it has hit the liberal arts quite hard, and uh, I think it's it's, it's going. It, 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 I think it's I think it's undermining uh, the American mind. Uh, I, I I have seen uh, as a teacher uh, the devolution of, of of quality in students and in writing in particular. And uh, you 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 assign a twenty five page term paper. Of students drop your classes, <laughs> and, uh, and what they turn in is quite often plagiarized. Uh, it's um, it, it, and we get students who are getting out of college now with barely what was a high school gener- uh, uh, education fifty years ago. So I I see us slipping as a society, and, and we're losing our moral foundations as well because uh, we we have all these programs. And one of the suggestions I give is get rid of of uh, programs that have studies in them unless they are area studies where languages are required. Uh, for instance, uh, African-American studies, uh, women's studies, gay, lesbian, transgendered uh, studies, or queer studies. Uh, the, if you're getting a degree in queer studies, uh, you better learn to say, my name is Shauna, Shauna, and I'm your server, because that's what you're going to be doing the rest of your life is waiting tables. <laughs> Very true. I'm looking at our clock. We have maybe two minutes left. Um, on the phone line with us today is Dr. Earl Tilford, military historian, fellow for the Middle East and terrorism with the Center for Vision and Values, Grove City College. Uh, in the couple minutes remaining, Dr. Tilford, um, 
advice that you may have? Um, let's say someone's a little bit younger. Um, they're looking at a, a life of service in, in the public, perhaps, or or maybe a, a fellow wants to raise his kids and have them uh, get a full-orbed education. Maybe they're homeschooling, Christian school. Any positive advice going forward, basically to save our nation? Well, I, the word radical, it doesn't mean far out. It means it comes from a Greek word for root. It means getting back to your roots and wrapping very tightly around that. I think we need a radical change in our education systems, and we need to go after the roots, the, the classics. Uh, we need to, 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 to understand who we are and what we are as a people. And to a young person, I would, I would say do that. But also I would say go with your passions uh, and, and, and go with what you think is important in life. But always try to ask yourself, you know, who I am and whose am I? And why was I put here? Because life is very short and it's very precious. And you need to just grab this life and, and, and get, it, get out of it what you can. And, and, you, and, and counseling a young man the other, uh, who's a, a doctoral student the other day, I said, there are high points and there are low points, but you don't really appreciate the mountains of life until you've been in the valleys. And uh, just, you've got to just know who is God of, of both those mountains and valleys. And uh, realize that you're put here with a purpose, and you're created in the image of God. And he gave you so much. Try to give back. And you can do that in the military. We need people like that in our military, in our intelligence services, and in our government, in, in politics. And uh, frankly, I'm, I'm afraid we're getting shortchanged at that end first. But it's, it's affected our educational systems, and, and it's, it's beginning to affect our military. And we need, as a nation... Uh, to get back to 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 what we used to be and to to be great again, and we can be and we should be. Well, amen. I love those two questions you posed: Who am I and whose am I? That's wonderful. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Today we've been talking with Dr. Earl Tilford, military historian, fellow for Middle East and terrorism the Center for Vision and Values at Grove City College. Dr. Tilford, if someone wants to read some of your writings, get a hold of you, or learn more about the college, any websites you'd like to share with us? Well, you can always write me at tilford at comcast.net. Uh, go to the Vision and Values website at Grove City College and go to the Philos Project uh, website. I write for them. Uh, but uh, you can always just uh, send me an email. And that's Tilford at Comcast.net. Yep. Well, thank you so much for taking the time with our listeners today, Dr. Tilford. We truly appreciate it. Okay, well, thank you. And I hope everything in New York is fine. <laughs> Dear listener, please join us next week at the same time for another edition of A Plain Answer. <laughs> 